about three. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Righto? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today on Terranauts, we're going to continue the story of the Gemini program. We're almost to the point of finally getting a human on board, but before we do that, we have a few loose ends to tie up and tie together. We have talked a lot about the features of the Gemini capsule and its booster, and we've talked a lot about the Gemini program and its journey to the launch pad, and it's safe to say we've seen some uh, evolution along the way. But maybe now is a good time to take a step back and take a look at the Gemini spacecraft itself, what it looked like and how it was meant to work, and also what it was uh, meant to do on orbit. And before we do that, it's actually probably useful to take a look at what was going on at NASA and, and in fact, in the wider world in the two years or so since the Gemini program had officially been stood up. Remember, when Gemini was first announced in January of 1962, uh, the U.S. had yet to put an astronaut actually into orbit. The Mercury program was going full speed and had successfully gotten a couple of American astronauts into space, but its total time in space amounted to, I don't know, 20 minutes? John Glenn, though, was on the verge of uh, launching to fix that deficiency in February of 1962. But in January of 1962, the U.S. space program had really not proved that it could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Soviets in any meaningful way yet. Now, by 1964, that had certainly changed, but it was also true that there was no feeling at Na that NASA had caught up to the Soviets yet. As Gene Kranz said in his autobiography, at the time Gemini started flying, the U.S. had not yet set a single first in space. The Soviets had been the first to orbit one human. They'd also been the first to do it a second time. And they continued to have the lead, both in the number of cosmonauts that had been in orbit and the total time that they had spent there. Although Gordon Cooper's flight of 34 hours had moved him into second place temporarily, but, true, the Soviets had then extended the record uh, to almost five days since that time. Uh, the first woman in space had been a Soviet, and the Soviets had been the first to fly two cosmonauts at the same time, albeit in separate spacecraft. So, it was clear that by any measure in 1964, the Soviets still appeared to be leading the space race. But... Uh, although the Soviets were still very much seen as the leaders in space, it was also clear that NASA was at least keeping pace, and in fact probably closing the gap. If you included the two suborbital flights of Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, NASA had actually flown as many human beings as the Soviets had. And while the U.S. had left the planet last in May of 1962, uh, by the time of Gemini it had actually almost been almost a year since the last Soviet manned spaceflight. So clearly both sides were kind of regrouping for the next round, and NASA was pretty confident that with the new capabilities of the Gemini spacecraft, they would soon be taking the lead. Um, it's also probably true, though, that the competition between the superpowers in space had taken on an even greater importance in the two years since Gemini had come into being. 
And that's because the strategic importance of being able to go to space had come into very bright focus in the fall of 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the Soviet Union had moved to station ballistic missiles in Cuba in response to the U.S. deployment of similar missiles to Turkey. At this juncture, both superpowers had had to confront the prospect of an enemy that could drop a nuclear weapon on a significant part of their territory out of, literally, the clear blue sky. For a few weeks, in the fall of 1962, there appeared to be the very real possibility that the situation might actually degenerate into a nuclear exchange. Now, the crisis had eventually been resolved, and the Soviets and the Americans had both removed their missiles from each other's borders. But it was also clear to anyone paying attention that eventually it was going to be possible for the Soviets and the Americans to design rockets that didn't need to be stationed in neighboring countries in order to be able to attack each other. Then sooner or later, they would be able to design rockets that could attack anywhere on the planet from space. And whoever did that first was going to have a significant advantage. Which put the whole title of First in Space in a whole new light. On the national stage, uh, much had happened in Gemini's uh, short two-year lifespan. The most obvious and traumatic of these events had, of course, been the assassination of President John Kennedy in November of 1963. This event still retains its status as one of the most memorable events in the history for the generation of Americans that lived through it. It may, in fact, only be rivaled by what was, in effect, one of President Kennedy's enduring legacies, the first moon landing. For NASA, in 1963, charged with the president's vision, his death served only to sharpen the resolve of everyone involved to make that vision a reality. This commitment was, of course, reiterated by the new president, Lyndon B. Johnson, who had always been a driving force behind the space program anyway. In order to meet the challenge of getting to the moon and back by the end of the decade, and in order to meet the broader challenge of leading the United States space program, NASA had become virtually unrecognizable in the two years since Gemini had been announced. I mean, we've already talked about the fact that the Gemini program was officially announced at the same time as NASA also announced that it was moving all of its manned space programs into one new center, and actually physically moving that organizational center to a new physical manned spaceflight center on the Gulf Coast of Texas near Houston. When Gemini was announced, NASA had certainly grown beyond being a one-program agency in the form of Project Mercury, because the Apollo program had already been started in 1961. But in 1962, everything was pretty much still dwarfed by Project Mercury. By 1964, on the other hand, Apollo had grown to be the centerpiece of NASA's current and future plans, and Gemini, as the main means of getting ready for Apollo, had grown apace. Both programs now dwarfed the size that Mercury had ever been at its largest extent. And there was no doubt that Gemini was seen by NASA as being a stepping stone on the way to Apollo. By 1964, the moon was NASA's abiding obsession. And there was a very real sense that everything happening in manned spaceflight needed to be contributing to the success of that goal. And, in fact, uh, one of the other major changes at NASA had been a reorganization that separated the team responsible for actually flying NASA missions 
from the development program. So while Gemini and Apollo worked to develop their spacecraft and plan their missions, the astronauts who would fly the missions and the flight controllers who would control the missions were now in completely separate divisions, focused only on making each flight another successful stepping stone on the way to the moon. And, as we discussed last week, we're finally getting to the point in our story where those folks at the pointy end, <laughs> literally, will once again take center stage. But before we get there, uh, we need to take uh, talk a little bit more about the hardware they occupy and support while it was on orbit. So let's take a look at the design of the Gemini spacecraft itself and what the Gemini program hoped to be able to do with it. As we first talked about in the episode called Technological Imperatives, there were four original objectives for the Gemini program. The first two of these were uh, considered to be absolutely essential in order to plan and gain experience for the trip to the moon. And these were rendezvous operations in space and long-duration spaceflight. The eventual design of the Apollo missions would require not one, but actually two operations where spacecraft would have to separate and then come back together, form a rendezvous. The most obvious of these was, of course, in orbit around the moon, wherein the lunar lander would have to separate from the main Apollo spacecraft uh, for the trip down to the moon's surface. And then it would then, of course, have to return to the lunar orbit and join up with that spacecraft again in order to get the astronauts home. But there was actually another operation that was going to require some um, pretty high-fidelity on-orbit maneuvering. Uh, and this uh, involved the way that the Apollo modules were going to be loaded onto the Saturn V rocket versus how they needed to be arranged for the actual trip to the moon. You see, when the astronauts arrived at the moon, they would need to exit their capsule, known as the command module, and get into the lunar module. And they would need to do this through a hatch at the top, or front of the command module. Now, the main propulsion system of the whole Apollo spacecraft would be in the service module that was at the other end, below or behind the command module, which was fine. Except that on the launch pad, it was important that the command module be on the top of the stack, because that's where the crew sat, and the only thing that could be above it on the launch pad was the escape system rocket that would pull it and the astronauts to safety in the event of an accident on the pad. So for launch, the lunar module couldn't be attached to the command module in its flight configuration. It had to be stowed behind the service module in the stack. So once the Apollo missions got to Earth orbit and were getting ready to go to the moon, there would be one final step that the astronauts would have to perform, which was like a little sort of ballet in space, where the command and service modules would motor forward a little bit, flip around, point back at the stowed lunar module, and then motor forward, connect to it, and basically pull it away from the uh, Saturn rocket stack. And then they'd flip the whole thing over again and head to the moon. So yeah, NASA really did need to know how rendezvous operations were going to work before they got too far down the road of designing the various parts of the Apollo spacecraft. The other issue that was essential to test before Apollo was the ability of an astronaut crew to function on flights longer than a day, which was the longest duration of the Mercury flights. It was clear that the Apollo missions were going to take between 9 and 14 days, depending on a lot of factors, including how long the astronauts spent on the lunar surface. 
But maybe more importantly, the most challenging parts of those missions would occur somewhere between four and seven days into the mission when the astronauts actually went down to the moon's surface. Now, NASA needed to know that astronauts were going to be able to perform pretty much at the tops of their games after they'd been in space for maybe as much as a week. And as I've talked a little bit about before, the limited experience available at the time, uh, which actually mostly came from the Soviet Union and which NASA knew a little bit about, but not very much, that experience was not entirely encouraging at the time, since at least some astronauts seemed to experience significant periods of degraded performance and even near-complete debilitation in the case of at least one cosmonaut. So NASA was definitely eager to start flying longer flights. So uh, those were the first two critical requirements, but in addition to those two, there were still two other objectives that Gemini had originally hoped to be able to accomplish. The first had actually been to design and test a new method of recovery so that NASA would not have to continue to depend on splashdowns at sea, which were an extremely expensive method of recovering the capsule, and which also gave the astronauts extremely limited control of their own destiny once the spacecraft started its re-entry. By early 1964, though, it was clear that Gemini was not going to meet this goal. As we've talked about in the episode called Gliding to a Stop, uh, the ill-fated paraglider system that was supposed to have allowed the astronauts to control the final descent to the landing field had never really got off the ground. Or maybe it's more appropriate to say it's never really stayed up in the air, having suffered from repeated failures that destroyed the test capsules it was attached to. So, NASA went back to landing in the ocean and depending on the U.S. Navy to recover the spacecraft. And they would continue to do so for almost 20 years, really until the space shuttle started flying. The last objective, which didn't start out being a high priority, but which rose rapidly importance as time went by, was to develop the expertise in what NASA has always called extravehicular activities, EVAs, and which the rest of us generally refer to as spacewalking. Now, we'll talk about the reasons why EVAs occupied a bigger part of the Gemini program than originally intended as we go along. Um, initially, it had a lot to do, actually, with some individuals at NASA. Uh, then it had a little bit to do with geopolitics. But eventually, it had to do with the fact that EVAs just turned out to be, frankly, like, really hard much harder than anyone at NASA thought they were going to be. So, the big three objectives for the Gemini program in 1964 were rendezvous, long-duration spaceflight, and EVA. So, maybe it's time to finally talk in some detail about the vehicle that NASA had designed to help accomplish these goals, and particularly uh, how it differed from its predecessor. The biggest difference is that while the Mercury capsule pretty much was the spacecraft, the Gemini capsule was actually only part of the larger spacecraft. But for now, let's just take a look at the capsules themselves. Um, from the outside, beyond the fact that Gemini was larger so that it could accommodate two astronauts instead of Mercury's one, um, the two capsules were pretty similar, which is not surprising given that the Gemini capsule was derived from Mercury. Both capsules were in effect um, fairly squat, uh, wide-bottomed cones with a small cylinder stuck on top. The bottoms of both cones were covered in an ablative heat shield to protect the capsule during re-entry, and the small cylinder at the top 
contained the recovery system consisting of drogue and main parachutes. Now, the Mercury capsule was quite different in that it mounted an escape system tower, um, which was basically a vertical truss structure topped by a small rocket booster that was capable of pulling the capsule away from the booster in the event of an emergency on launch or early in the ascent phase. Gemini solved the same problem by using individual ejection seats for the crew, so it did not have the long tower that both Mercury and Apollo later did on top of their capsules. Inside the capsules, the basic arrangement of Gemini and Mercury was similar. The astronauts uh, sat, or lay, on couches, seats, with their backs towards the base, uh, or the heat shield end of the capsule, and facing the narrow end of the capsule. On the pad, and during re-entry, they'd be lying on their backs, uh, facing forward for launch, facing backwards for re-entry. Beyond that basic arrangement, though, the capsules actually were quite different. Um, it has been said that astronauts did not so much uh, sit in the Mercury capsule as they put it on and wore it to space, uh, the capsule was entered through a small hatch that was above and to the side of the crew couch. The hatch had a small window in it, but once seated, the window was not directly in the line of sight of the astronaut. Now, when seated, the astronaut was confronted by an instrument and switch panel, but no window to see outside. Um, they would have to lean into a periscope that would give them a view outside, but the viewer of the periscope was actually below their feet, looking out the other side of the capsule, effectively. The instrument panel consisted of instruments specifically designed for Mercury and didn't really resemble anything like a standard aircraft cockpit. And now, the, aircraft, the astronauts did have sort of joysticks available on either hand, but the left-hand one was just uh, a handle to activate the abort system. The right-hand controller was connected to the reaction control system, but from what I've been able to find out, it was a pretty rudimentary system that basically allowed the astronauts to activate one control axis at a time. Uh, and these axes were only the attitude axis, so the, air, the astronaut could roll the spacecraft, or they could pitch the nose up and down, or they could yaw it side to side, but they could only do one of those things at a time and not in combination. So all in all, sitting in the Mercury capsule felt a bit less like uh, sitting in a flying machine than it did sort of sitting in an instrument-controlled cabinet. The Gemini capsule, on the other hand, had been designed to mimic the cockpit of an aircraft. The crew sat side by side in the same sort of custom-fitted couches with their backs facing the heat shield, but the seats were accessed from directly overhead by hatches that, by Mercury standards, were luxuriously large and which would actually allow the astronauts to uh, get out of the capsule when it was on orbit. The hatches followed the tapered shape of the capsule, but they also included integrated windows, which, when the hatch was closed, effectively became a windscreen like that on an aircraft cockpit. This window, it only allowed a limited field of vision straightforward, but it was directly in front of the astronaut at eye level. The instrument arrangement was similar, uh, at least, to the arrangement of an aircraft cockpit, with a large artificial horizon-style instrument in the middle of the panel, and on the commander's uh, the left-hand side, there were dials for speed and altitude, as well as engine and fuel readouts. On the right-hand side, the pilot's side, 
The cockpit features uh, the same central, central kind of artificial horizon, along with some dials and switches to control the electrical system and the flight computer. And this, of course, was another one of the important differences between Gemini and Mercury. Mercury capsule had no flight computer at all. Controls were affected through mechanical linkages or electromechanical switches. The Gemini capsule, on the other hand, had one of the very first digital flight computers that allowed specific types of maneuvers, like the all-important re-entry burn, to be completed under computer control. Between the commander and the pilot was a central console that ran from overhead all the way down the middle and then to a pedestal between the two seats. And on it, there were switches and controls connected to the main spacecraft systems, as well as a communications control panel. Now, control of the spacecraft was affected using two controllers. Um, there was a deployable one, uh, a stick, that when it was pulled out and rotated, uh, rested underneath the commander's left hand. Uh, his right hand would rest on another controller on the central pedestal. The left hand controller was used to move, or translate, the spacecraft forward, backward, up, down, left, or right. The right-hand controller was used to rotate the spacecraft. And this arrangement would have felt very familiar to any pilot who was used to having a throttle in their left hand and a joystick in their right. Now, all in all, uh, the Gemini cockpit was a pretty tight fit, uh, especially for astronauts who were bigger than Gus Grissom, which was all of them. But it felt much more like the environment they were used to in a jet fighter plane. So, from a pilot's perspective, Gemini was a big improvement over Mercury. It was a big improvement in the minds of the engineers and technicians as well, but for reasons outside the cockpit. And this was because of the fact that, as I mentioned, the Gemini spacecraft actually consisted of multiple parts. In the Mercury capsule, um, systems such as the electrical power system, the communications equipment, environmental control and management system, and the reaction or attitude control system lived inside the capsule with the astronaut, and often in areas under or behind the astronaut's seat, making them extremely difficult to access even for the simplest diagnostic testing. The only major systems outside the actual cockpit were the recovery parachute system on top of the capsule and the re-entry rocket system that was strapped to the bottom of the heat shield, uh, which had been the topic of some fairly frantic discussion on John Glenn's flight, you might remember. By contrast, the Gemini spacecraft was actually built in two parts, and pretty much everything that was not essential for re-entry was moved outside the capsule, which was now known as, well, the re-entry module. The other module was known as the adapter module, because it's what actually attached to the booster. And so the re-entry module included uh, the re-entry control system, which were some small engines to steer the capsule during re-entry, as well as some navigation sensors and the basic radios. The adapter module would be separated from the re-entry module once the re-entry burn had been completed and the capsule was on a trajectory to bring it back to Earth. The adapter module consisted of two sections. The section immediately below the re-entry module was called the retrograde section, and it was analogous to Mercury's strap-on retropack. It contained four engines needed to perform the re-entry burn that would bring the spacecraft out of orbit. These were basically spherical engines mounted on a cross truss attached to the heat shield. Now, the main part of the adapter module, uh, known as the equipment section, 
contained all of the other major spacecraft systems, including the main electrical power generation and communications equipment and other instrumentation, as well as the orbital attitude and maneuvering system, which was basically all of the rocket engines and their associated propellant tanks that would steer and maneuver Gemini on orbit as the astronauts practiced their rendezvous maneuvers. So, while the Gemini and Mercury capsules were similar in shape, and not too different in size, the full Gemini spacecraft was quite a bit larger than Mercury. The Mercury spacecraft, uh, not including its escape tower, was a bit more than three meters high and a bit less than two meters in diameter. The heaviest Mercury spacecraft, Mercury Atlas 9, weighed in at about 3,000 pounds, or 1,400 kilograms. By contrast, the Gemini spacecraft was almost twice as large and almost three times as heavy, coming in at around five and a half meters tall and three meters in diameter, and weighing in at over 8,000 pounds, or 3,700 kilograms. So, uh, as we have noted, it was a dummy spacecraft conforming to this size and weight that launched on the Titan Gemini launch vehicle on the 8th of April 1964. With the conclusion of that successful flight proving that the booster was ready, the way was cleared for Gemini to start getting its brand new craft into space. But was it ready? Uh, when we last checked in on Gemini development around the beginning of 1964, there were still some um, significant development milestones that had yet to be cleared. Now, the recovery system had been certified, so NASA knew that it could get the astronauts up and down again safely, sort of. The other main piece of crew safety equipment, the escape system, meaning the ejection seats and their associated parachutes, didn't actually finish full certification until early in 1964, but by the launch of Gemini 1, all of the crew safety systems were ready for launch, so the crew would be able to go to space and come back again. Um, the question was what they'd do there, and how long they'd be able to stay, uh, and these were still very much open questions at the time of Gemini 1. Uh, for instance, on the what they would do there question, uh, there were still some very major questions about being able to test rendezvous, this was partly because of the readiness of the Gemini capsule itself, but also significantly because of another part of the program that we actually haven't talked about in any detail, and that's the Agena program that was supposed to supply the rendezvous target for the Gemini capsule. Um, on the capsule side of things, though, the situation was not great, but seemed to be headed towards a satisfactory resolution. The issue that we talked about a few episodes back had to do with the thrusters that made up the orbit attitude and maneuvering system. At the time of the Gemini 1 launch, these thrusters seemed to be working, but hadn't yet convincingly shown that they could meet their duty cycle requirements, meaning it wasn't clear that they'd stand up to being fired as long as they would need to be to complete the kind of rendezvous maneuvers that NASA had planned. However, at around the time of Gemini 1, there was pretty strong evidence that a simple change to the way the thrusters were manufacturers would, uh, manufactured would solve the problem, and within a couple of months of Gemini 1, it was to prove to be so, and the OAM's thrusters were formally certified in the summer of 1964. The Agena project, on the other hand, for reasons we won't go into today, was not ready and was not going to be ready in time for the planned first full flight of Gemini, or even for the third flight. The story of how Gemini got to the point where it would not really be able to start working on its primary objective of rendezvous 
until its flight program was actually almost half over is one that we'll have to take up in a future episode. For now, suffice it to say that full-up rendezvous operations would not feature in NASA's early mission plans. Neither, in point of fact, would the second objective of real long-duration flight, and this was because of another engineering challenge that we've referred to briefly but hadn't really looked at in great detail, and that was the problem of fuel cells. These, as you may or may not recall, um, were the means by which NASA was expecting to generate electrical power for long-duration flights. Um, this was because using batteries for flights longer than a few days was not really feasible because of the weight uh, of the batteries rapidly became prohibitive. Instead, NASA had hit on the idea of using a chemical reaction cell in which oxygen and hydrogen were combined in order to generate electricity and water. It was a simple, clean source of electrical energy, and it continues to be in point of fact, and it worked well both in theory and in practice in the laboratory in the early 1960s. It proved, though, to be maddeningly, maddeningly difficult to make work in a practical application, especially one that had to work in zero gravity and in the extremes of temperature that the Gemini capsule was going to experience. General Electric, the contractor responsible for designing and building the fuel cells, had been working on developing an operational unit from the working prototype for more than two years. After one major management change and one complete redesign, it looked, by the spring of 1964, like they might have finally cracked the problem. But it could not be guaranteed that a working unit would be available in time for the first few Gemini flights. So NASA decided to limit the length of the Gemini flights to no more than four days until at least Gemini 5. So heading into the final stretch towards the first flights of the full Gemini spacecraft, what could NASA plan to do? Well, uh, they could certainly plan to make sure the spacecraft worked as planned and that it was capable not only of surviving launch, but also of surviving re-entry. That NASA planned to do on Gemini 2, a suborbital flight, that would see the unmanned Gemini spacecraft launch into space, checked out briefly, and then allowed to re-enter so that the re-entry and recovery systems could be checked. And that mission was planned for the fall of 1964. Then the real show would begin uh, with Gemini 3, which would be a short three-orbit checkout flight in the style of the first Mercury missions to ensure that Gemini and the Gemini team were ready for full operations. They would need to be because once the flying started, uh, it was going to occur at a rate that was actually pretty unprecedented. NASA fully expected to fly Gemini 4 only two months after Gemini 3 and Gemini 5 less than three months after that. All in all, the Gemini program was expecting to complete 10 manned missions, some nearly two weeks in duration, in a little over two years. Uh, to put that in perspective, in the same time period, Mercury had flown six times, and two of those flights had been suborbital. All of which is to say that as the first fully functional Gemini capsule was mated to its Titan Gemini launch vehicle on Pad 39 at Kennedy Space Center, as it was now known, in the late summer of 1964, NASA was looking forward to a busy fall and winter of getting back to space. For once, all the man-made parts of the program seemed to be in order. The booster was ready, the capsule was ready, the team was ready. Unfortunately, Mother Nature was not. 
And, as so often happens in the space program, Mother Nature got the final say. Uh, which is where we're going to have to pick up the story next time. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down. <laughs>